that was, you know, this design that we came up with years ago. And then at some point along the way, that team, like the hub development team abandoned it and moved towards this like very simplistic, basic version of ICS, which is all the hub validators run <laughs> the, all these other chains, which is not really, that's it, like, it's not scalable at all, right? Like you have to go through a governance proposal to add new chains. You have to um, like, it's, it's really a block size increase. It's not a scalability solution. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research brought to you by the Atom Accelerator. If you're a developer looking for the uh, new home in this industry, the Atom Economic Zone welcomes you. You'll hear more about the Atom Accelerator later in the show. Today is July 3rd, and we have a great interview with Sunny, the founder of Osmosis, a cornerstone of the Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, we really dove into, like, honestly, it was a great discuss discussion around just DEX architecture as a whole. It's really been a hot topic recently in this, the entire industry. And the Cosmos, in my opinion, has kind of, like, you know, lacked a lot of that innovation. You know, you have you have Uniswap kind of pioneering the V3 active AMM. Curve really led the way on on this, this passive... AMM structure, and those are both occurring over in the the Ethereum ecosystem. But Osmosis has really got some very interesting developments under the hood, uh, and it's going to be an exciting few months for them. So, really great conversation on on why Osmosis is building in the direction they're building. Uh, but of course, before we get to the interview, we have a little intro segment this time with Ren and Westy from the Blockworks Research team. Uh, before we jump into our typical hot seat cool throne. We got a little governance update for you. So it's a new segment we're trying out. Be sure to let us know if you're a fan. But, you know, DeFi governance is such a happening area. There's always seemingly some crazy thing going on. Uh, and this week was no exception. So Curve, Aave, and BitDAO all have some interesting developments. So we'll start with Curve. Uh, wrapped Bitcoin and Ethereum are now live as listed and approved collaterals with the game plan to lower interest rates by 40% on those assets. Um, this kind of comes at a time when, you know, there's been a ton of demand or already over 50 million CRV USD borrowed, uh, and the wrapped Bitcoin and just pure native ETH were recently listed, but there hasn't been a huge demand for those two assets. Uh, and it's really because the interest rates were set a little bit too high. They were kind of more in line with what, uh, the liquid staking derivatives are. And the, the logic is, you know, these, these assets carry less risk. And to be more competitive with the rest of the market, we're going to have to drop those rates to a lower rate. Uh, so excited to kind of see that kick through. And that vote was just pushed uh, yesterday on July 2nd. So on July 9th, that will be either approved or denied. Uh, over in Aave, Go is still greenlit for an on-chain vote. I've said that a few times now. Um, it's pretty interesting. So Aave Companies, which is the original founding uh, company for the protocol of Aave, has created the Go contracts, you know, tested them, gotten them audited, and has them ready for delivery. And then ACI uh, is kind of like this, uh, this third-party group that really manages the Aave forums and a lot of the things that happen on the governance side for the Aave protocol. Uh, and uh, the most recent forum post by Aave companies said, hey, you know, we're ready to go. We're like fully on board. You know, now is kind of your last time to make any comments. Um, and that was a couple weeks ago now. And the ACI just six days ago left another comment on there saying, you know, this is this is greenlit from a technical and governance perspective. There's no blockers left. And it's been that way for a while. At this point, there's really no real reason for this vote not to get pushed on chain. So, you know, I've been tracking the deployers and been paying attention to the Aave governance contract, but still no luck. So really excited to see Go push live. 
Um, but you know, we're kind of like sitting in this this limbo where we kind of are waiting for for Aave companies to pull the trigger. Uh, and then lastly, with BitDAO, uh, if you pay any attention to, to DeFi governance, BitDAO is always this this front runner in level of excitement. Um, you know, they're right now they're undergoing a migration from BitDAO to Mantle to kind of more organize themselves around their core product, uh, which is Mantle, an Ethereum rollup that is an optimistic rollup. And interestingly, they will be powered by Eigen, Eigenlayers, uh, Data Availability Service, so EigenDA. And that's kind of like their core differentiator at this point. And so to kind of get their uh, their branding right, they really want to rally around this Mantle idea rather than BitDAO and kind of also just kind of really instantiate that this is like a new product. They're doing a one-to-one token swap from BIT to MNT. Uh, and the community is currently voting on a proposal that will burn 3 billion uh, tokens of BIT tokens that are sitting uh, and being held by the DAO in response to some community current concerns around a super high FDV for an Ethereum L2. So this would actually decrease their FDV by about $1.5 billion from $4.8 billion to $3.3 billion. Uh, and so, you know, the meaning of an FDV has always been a an interesting concept and like is fdv a meme has been such a burning question and you know there's reasons to think yes and reasons to think no uh but wesley i'm curious on your thoughts here is fdv just a meme or is it really a a metric that we can rely on yeah that's a good question i feel like people saying fdv is a meme is more like a, a bull run phenomenon when people are thinking sort of in the short term because obviously it's supply that's going to hit the market at some point in the future so you should be thinking about it when it comes from like a valuation standpoint, but at the same time, I think it's a good point that FTV, like not all FTVs are created equal because like you said in the, this bit scenario, and I can think of synthetics as a good other alternative. If you have your token, your native token in your treasury and there are sort of ideas circulating uh, to burn uh, your token, all of a sudden the FTV um, doesn't matter as much. Whereas FTV may be held by uh, investors or things along those lines where you know that supply cannot get burned and it's going to come unlocked at some point in the future obviously should be counted but at the same time there are also uh cryptocurrencies that have sort of inflation or that's not part of the fdv uh, it's not part of the value that's currently circulating or or rather not circulating but exists and rather has emissions in the future and so there are ways in which sort of fdv doesn't really exist but also kind of does exist so it's definitely a more nuanced subject I think one thing I will add there is that you saw a lot of DeFi tokens or DeFi protocols to be more accurate have really high emissions during the bull run. And then throughout the past year, they realized that all of those emissions aren't doing any good for the protocol. So for example, Ribbon has decreased their emissions by 50%. Marinade has decreased their emissions by 75%. And theoretically, like that total supply still exists, but your emissions have been greatly reduced, right? So at that point, do you still think about the FDB as like the full FDB or maybe like the FDB should be compressed a little because that emissions that originally existed probably isn't going to hit the market anytime soon. But then also, for example, with what happened with BitDA, you know, these things can change at a whim, which is why it's so important to keep track of all of these government updates and use a great product such as ScuffHub to do so. Uh, the shameless plug. Well done, Red. We love to hear that. Um, but yeah, no, I think Westy hit the nail on the head there. I think the the reality is not all FDVs are created equal. And 
as much as we want to draw parallels from protocol A to protocol B, the reality is it's just too hard to do that in almost every situation. So, you know, like TradFi has EBITDA earnings before interest in uh, taxes. And the that's really interesting because it's like this one number you can compare, you know, very much so compare between companies in the same sector and even still to some extent, uh, any two given companies and kind of determine that profitability metric. And you know, that's something we're really still chasing, not only on the token level, but uh, even on like a, a revenue, uh, like a, a profitability and income statement level. So uh, it's just funny to see, you know, we still have so much work to do in, in so many different directions, but that's why it's exciting. Uh, let's uh, let's kick things over to the hot seat cool throw. And maybe Ren, I'll throw it to you first. Who you got this week? Yeah, sure. I got Azuki on the hot seat this week. So Azuki was a really popular NFT collection during the pool run. They raised around, I think, $40 million during their first collection. Um, last week, they announced and raised for a new collection called Elementals. So they sold 20,000 NFTs in total for this collection. 10,000 of these NFTs were airdropped to people that attended their in-person Las Vegas event. And then the other 10,000 were sold via Dutch auction to Azuki holders during a 10-minute pre-sale and then to Beanza holders during another 10-minute pre-sale window. They entirely sold out. They raised 20,000 ETH, roughly $38 million. Um, but then afterwards, people realized that these NFTs weren't as hyped up as they were meant to be for a few reasons. First of all, there were NFTs in this new collection that basically looked exactly the same as the previous collection, which obviously is no no for an NFT. Um, and then, for example, there were other people that were annoyed that Azuki holders got a head start versus other holders and so the TLDR is that the community is mad they're fuming right and that uh, that was shown in the floor price the floor price of Azuki went down by 50% over the weekend and Azuki DAO which is made up by a bunch of OG Azuki holders basically filed a lawsuit saying hey we want to call that 20,000 ETH back and it should be used for something else it shouldn't go to the team it should at at least be used for community development and rewards Obviously, Azuki had to sort of tackle this PR disaster um, in the fact that for some people, their NFT supply doubled overnight, right? And it's fair that the price of the NFT goes down by 50%. And so they're doing a few things. They're creating an anime series. They're going to update some of the background artwork. But, you know, it just seems like a very low effort attempt by NFT collection to raise more cash. Yeah, I definitely agree with that take. And what I think is interesting like you said, the artwork is basically exactly the same as the original con- collection. So you can see why the floor po- price of Azuki's themselves dropped because it basically diluted the supply by double. Um, but at the same time, this was sort of like a catalyst for the entire NFT market and the entire NFT community to just capitulate. Like floor prices, if you scroll on Blur, are just all down like 30% in the past couple of days as a result of this. And I'm not sure why this specifically caused that. Maybe people are starting to realize maybe their their JPEGs don't have as much intrinsic value as they thought they did. Um, but I think, yeah, it's been a super interesting event as a whole. And I wonder, is this a good time? Let's say you're bullish on Azuki's or maybe a similar NFT. Is this the point where you sort of get back in the market as a lot of these holders are capitulating? Or maybe are you waiting sort of for like a newer round of NFTs and sort of the next bull, ro- mar- bull market that don't have sort of like a clean slate? Um, so yeah, I'm wondering what you guys think. Well, the fact that I think we'd all probably agree that this is a sign NFTs are truly dying is is probably makes it a great great time to to go long if 
if that's uh, if that's what you're into, and of course not financial advice. But um, you know, for me, it's like like what did what did Azuki holders really expect out of this? Like when you have an NFT that just airdrops you more NFTs, this is like the inevitable death cir- circle. Like what else are the, what is the team supposed to do? Like okay, would you really be happy if the artwork looked better or? If it was like a, a you know a different looking a different style picture, like would you really not be sitting here complaining? I know in some ways it's like the reality is you're just slowly becoming to the realization that you know this PFP NFTs are probably dead. NFTs as art are are definitely not dead. You know the goose, the art blocks, uh, those will continue to be a thing and very much so. Like royalty art and high end art, luxury art, that is definitely a thing. And putting it on chain makes it a little bit more interesting. Um, NFTs as a technology is absolutely not dead. We're scratched the surface on what that will be. You know, I always use the example of the interchain uh, scheduler that the Cosmos ecosystem is going to implement. Uh, and the idea of tokenizing block space using NFTs makes a ton of sense. Every block is non-fungible with the other block. And like having the rights to order the transactions in that block uh, is a very interesting use case of NFTs. Uh, but for me, it's like, like what, are, what are we doing here? I, I, I do think that's kind of, I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but I really don't think we're going to see the same like congregation of attention around PFP NFTs in the next cycle. I'm sure there will be something else, but I just don't think it'll be NFTs. And, you know, I'm happy for the service they played and the role that they played in the last bull run, bringing people on chain and kind of being that first, you know, reason for regular old Joes to, to come on chain and, and interact with the blockchain. But um, yeah, just can't see a world where those are like, you know, really you know, as important as they, they are made out to be. I just thought it's kind of funny that we we're talking about is FTV a meme during the BitDAO discussion just now. And we we're like, you know, BitDAO can just decrease the uh, bit FTV by what, 3 billion uh, overnight through a governance vote. And Azuki kind of did the same thing, you know, like they just say, like, okay, I'm just going to double the supply FTV of my NFT collection has now become a meme. And that reflected in the market prices. So I just thought it was interesting dynamics between sort of like fungible tokens and what are meant to be non-fungible tokens. It's also just wild to me that that team just like, you know, printed $38 million at a thin air off this. Like that is you know, props to them. Like they're just doing what they were asked to do. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of got away from the original idea of like, you know, what should happen with the $38 million? Does anyone have a take on if that should be clawed back or if just kind of fair game? Yeah, it's a little bit scummy to sort of not reveal that the art is exactly the same. But at the same time, I guess a holder, you have no, I guess, obligation to to buy these new NFTs. For most of the people, like 10,000 of the 20,000 was airdropped to people at their event. So it was free to them. And so overall, like... I think, yeah, like they're entitled to that money, but at the same time, they do so at like the result of their reputation being damaged. So I don't think they're going to be able to raise as much, if not even close to that much money in the future. And so I just think that's sort of where they lose out. I don't, I'm, I don't think the fund should be brought back. I, I feel like there's a pretty fair legal case if someone really wanted to pursue it that what they were offering was a new collection. And you could just go to a court of law and say, hey, like these many images of the new collection are exactly the same as these many images of the old collection. You know, like all of your marketing materials say that this is going to be like a new collection. God forbid they say like new artwork or new background, new colors uh, in their sort of like 
teaser for this new elemental collection. And so I feel like there is actually partially a case out there because there's a lot of time where, for example, like someone does product marketing, they put like slightly misleading statements and those do hold up in the court of law. You know, someone goes like, hey, your product promised that it would do this, but it didn't. And there's like a pretty big industry around that, actually. Yeah, that's a fair point there, Ren. Uh, Wesley, who do you got in the hot seat that are cool drone this week? Yeah, it's definitely not a zero X research episode without putting Coinbase in the the cool throne. So I had to do it this week. Had to do it. Had to do it. Uh, David is definitely gonna have a smile on his face watching this back. Um, yeah, they could have easily been in the hot seat though after the news last Friday that said that the ETF applications of recent, such as the one from BlackRock, were deemed inefficient by the SEC, and so at the time it caused the price of coin and BTC to dump in the hours following. But some people were able to catch that the reason that they were deemed inefficient was because the applications just didn't specify the crypto marketplace that they were using because they would need to also enter under the surveillance sharing agreement um, that the, the SEC was looking for. And so like clockwork, almost all of the ETF applications of recent, such as Fidelity, Wisdom Tree, Vanek, Galaxy and Arc, I think were all of them, all listed Coinbase immediately as their selected exchange. And so obviously that's super, super bullish for, for Coinbase as a whole. Um, because if you know one or more of these ETFs were to be accepted, Coinbase would be the exchange of choice. And there's sort of a delayed reaction where it was like on Friday, we didn't really see a bump after people figured this out. But as of today and Monday, July 3rd, Coin is up like 12% on the day, 11 to 12%. Um, which I think is people sort of digesting that news. And yeah, I mean, just another great week for, for Coinbase overall. Yeah, this was, this was an interesting one. Um, and I don't know, I have zero information on the success, likelihood of success for the, the slew of ETS we've seen come through. Um, I tend to lean towards the camp of, you know, we, we saw this second round and I'd like to think BlackRock knew something, and even if the other firms didn't know anything, they knew that BlackRock knew something. Um, but at the same time, it's like everyone is now listing the exchange that the SEC is actively suing to get approval from the SEC on their ETF application. So it's like, I don't know, it just feels so weird. And I, I want to be bullish about it, but it's it's tough because it's that 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 right there, if you just took that sentence out of context, it would make no sense that these ETFs would be getting approved. Yeah, I think a few other interesting implications of this is that, for example, is anyone going to come on and there's like a ETH spot ETF? Um, and then just a bit more on the surveillance sharing agreement. So that that's basically talking about the fact that a spot ETF needs an exchange with kind of sufficient liquidity, right? So that a manipulator would have to trade on that market to manipulate the spot price of that token. And a surveillance, share, a surveillance sharing agreement kind of says, okay, like if there is any market manipulation occurring, then one thing we're going to need to do is going to share that trade data, like see who's manipulating the spot price so you can pursue any legal action. I think one thing that I think about is that if someone creates a spot token ETF with uh, where like the most liquidity is on chain, right? On a decentralized exchange, uh, whether that's like Curve, Uniswap, or Fresh, say Curve for a state thief, right? Um, 
how does the surveillance sharing agreement work? You know, or is it just not ever possible to list a spot ETF? Because say a DEX has like 70% of the trade volume and liquidity, whereas the largest centralized exchange has 30% of the liquidity, then price discovery will likely happen on the DEX, right? But how do you do a surveillance sharing agreement with a DEX? And I think that's something that like we don't have to think about yet because we're just not that big of an asset class yet, but it's probably a question that someone will have to think about sooner or later down the road. Yeah, it's definitely a really good point. And another thing along these lines when talking about the the ETFs is I'm hearing a lot of rumors sort of on many different sides about how this is going to play out. Like no one really has a clear roadmap. I'm hearing from some people that the ETF could be approved as early as August. I'm hearing some people say that, you know, it's, this is strictly a political move from Larry Fink. That's sort of the, the timing of when this application is up in February, sort of time as well with a lot of the the presidential um, debates and whatnot. Um, and so there's a lot of different sides of whether, you know, this will be approved, this won't, what the timeline looks like. And so there's just a lot up in the air that we really don't know. So like, while this could be bullish for Coinbase, if they get approved, that's sort of like still a big if. Yeah, and speaking of timelines, there's actually a red flag this picture to me not too long ago. I will, uh, I only have a screenshot of this, but we'll figure out a way to get it in the show notes for you guys. Um, but it's actually following the life cycle of the iShares Bitcoin ETF, which is the BlackRock ETF. So um, the first major landmark will come through in regards to its approval or deny uh, being denied. It will be on the 12th of August. So at that point, the SEC has the ability to approve, deny, or extend the uh, uh, proposal for another 45 days. Uh, and then 45 days later will be September 26th, in which they can either approve, deny, or extend for 90 days. And then that would give them a third a third deadline to approve, deny, or extend for 60 days in December. And so generally what we've seen happen is on all three of those deadline dates, the ETF will get, the application will get extended in each period. Uh, which brings us to the fourth and final deadline day, which would actually be on the uh, 23rd of February, 2024. And so at this point, the SEC would have to make a final call on either approving or denying the ETF which is the expected date. Um, and I'm not a huge political person, but I do believe that February is a pretty big month for, the, I think it's the primary elections. So that's an interesting time there, be, making the SEC kind of come out and take a huge stance on this uh, during this very political uh, point in time. And more importantly, uh, in my mind, the next Bitcoin happening occurs roughly around the 25th of March. So uh, roughly one month out, we're going to have potentially an approved ETF and the Bitcoin halving, uh, which you know anyone who's spent any time in this industry knows very well that we tend to get the bullish wave kick off right around that 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 next uh, halving period. So the stars could very well be aligning. Uh, but I'll jump things over into my uh, hot seat cool throne this week, which is the last one uh, of the week, and I have compounds. So we recently got the announcement of Robert Leshner's new product. Superstate. Uh, and so Superstate aims to create uh, this regulated financial product that bridges traditional markets and blockchain ecosystems. And their first product is going to be this fund that holds short-term government bonds, uh, specifically SEC approved. Uh, so like basically con combining the TradFi world with on-chain, the on-chain world. And it definitely will need to be KYC approved 
as well as kind of have this um, you know U.S. based focused for like U.S. investors, and the tokens themselves will likely not be transferable. So it's kind of, you know the initial reaction there is kind of like okay, well, what's the point? Um, but this very much to me feels like this step one of just bringing traditional markets on chain. You know, we we clearly have improved efficiencies, near instant settlement, uh, and very cheap transactions that really. And over the long term, traditional markets likely won't be able to com- compete with. Um, but it's also this kind of like you know middle mar- middle ground of this is this the next step to like kind of bring these off chain yields on chain and find a way to incorporate them into DeFi. Uh, so you know I'd like to think the answer there is yes. Uh, so Superstate is really trying to be this first SEC compliant uh, KYC, uh, you know, on chain way to hold essentially government T bonds. So. Uh, pretty exciting development there. However, it gets bearish for comp holders as Robert Leshner has stepped down as the Compound Labs CEO uh, and actually made way for Jason Hobby, who's been with Compound Labs for over three years now. So definitely someone who knows the grounds, knows how the protocol works, knows the ins and outs, and kind of been uh, learning alongside Leshner for this entire time. Um, and, you know, Leshner hasn't officially stepped down until now, uh, but he's kind of seemed to have you know, been paying attention to more like different areas. I know it does a lot with Robo Ventures uh, and really just hasn't been too focused on uh, Compound. So maybe in that regard, it is bullish for them. It's like, hey, we've got a new uh, CEO look, looking over our protocol and kind of, you know, helping push things in the right directions. But for a long time, it's felt like Compound has really been losing the battle to Aave. Uh, and if you look at, you know, borrowed outstanding, you know, assets deposited, uh, now at the launch of, you know, they did successfully launch their V3. Um, but, you know, without the native stablecoin, uh, this really hurts the revenue potential of the protocol, and there's really no connection to how Superstate will benefit or just be totally separate from Compound itself, uh, which I think is most interesting because if you look at the token price, A, somebody definitely knew this was coming because the token started absolutely screaming a couple of days before the SEC's filings were even made public. Uh, so the SEC filings went through on the June 26th. The tokens started absolutely moving on the 24th. Um, from the June lows to the peak highs uh, during its run, it was actually a 200% move. And the rest of the market moved a fraction of that. So definitely seems like somebody knew, had some privy information here, uh, given that Compound's been down only for quite some time. Uh, so I hate to see that, honestly. We, we, we really need to be avoiding things like that. But uh, nonetheless, somebody believes quite confidently that there will be a connection between superstated compound, or maybe you know there was just a trade that they had some information on, or like okay, well the attention will flow to compound, so let me get there first. Hard to say, but uh, definitely some speculators in the water on this one. Yeah, I think it's an interesting move that they're starting with this, considering there's a few other protocols that are already providing treasury yields on chain, perhaps in a less like permission manner such as on the finance and there's a few others that I'm blanking on. I think one thing I'd like to point out is that CDFI, like the mix or the intersection of centralized finance and decentralized finance gets a bad rep. Like a lot of people out there is like, guys, no, like if you want to do DeFi, it has to be like entirely decentralized. We're not doing this CDFI BS. But I actually think much of the future is probably going to be CDFI. If anything, if I had to put a number to it, probably 90% of the value on chain is going to be CD. There's like a lot of money out there from ultra high net worth individuals, family offices, pension funds that are chasing yields and investment opportunities of different forms, right? And 
bringing it on chain enables two things. One, sort of enabling the opportunity to be accessible in the first place, because for example, I don't know, you're in Australia and you want to buy something in Canada, like you're probably not going to buy the Canada to sign something in person. Whereas putting it on chain makes it a lot more accessible. And two, it makes it sort of like it decreases the cost of processing those transactions. You know, DeFi is all about removing the middleman and putting it on chain does bring up that opportunity. And there is a lot of money chasing a lot of different opportunities. There's family offices worth like hundreds of billions of dollars just spending their entire day looking for the most random investment opportunities, whether that's real estate, adventure, uh, bonds. You know? And if you put that all in one place on chain in a transparent manner, like that's still a lot of bad for a lot of these people. Even if you think about, for example, your exchanges such as AVO, right? you would think of AVO as like a options decks, but in reality, like their matching engine runs off chain. Probably ninety nine percent of the liquidity is provided by like centralized market makers. Probably like two or three, maybe five. And I don't think it's a bad thing that they're centralized. I still get access to those type of opportunities on chain. Whereas in a completely like alternate world, I wouldn't even have access to those opportunities. Yeah, the way I see this is has like a bootstrapping mechanism. I know a lot of other RWA protocols are doing something similar where they're using U.S. treasuries and the fact that they have high yield given how high rates are currently and using that to sort of bridge the gap between traditional investors and sort of DeFi itself. And so while things may like begin permissioned and begin with uh, treasuries only, I think it's probably going to expand from there, maybe having more permission pools for for different RWA devices then eventually getting their way to more like permissionless open types of products uh but you know this is sort of the necessary first step because you know no other RWA product is probably going to do um the kind of impact that treasuries will because treasury yields are higher than a lot of DeFi yields at the moment and I agree with you Ren that it's sort of like a necessary quote-unquote evil although i wouldn't really call it that um and that like permission DeFi is going to happen whether you want it to or not um i guess the question is how it happens um, maybe we develop things beyond kyc that are maybe more improved that use ck proofs to sort of prove identity um and whatnot um but over time yeah i think that's going to be a growing sector of the market and it's something you're going to have to pay attention to as it grows yeah, I'm with you on that. And thinking this back to Compound, um, they had something called Compound Treasury for a while there, right? Right after they launched their V3, I want to say. And I'm not sure if that got killed off or not, uh, but definitely never got a meaningful amount of traction. And so I think Leshner was pretty excited about that. So my guess now is this is kind of super state is kind of like the reincarnated version of Compound Treasury, you know, really being that like institutional borrowland space that kind of helps bridge the gap between. Uh, TradFi and being on chain. So that's kind of where my head's at with this, but it'd be exciting to see if anything does develop and there is any, you know, rekindling of a connection with Compound. Um, but you know, that'll that'll be it for us, guys. We'll get you over to the interview with Sunny from Osmosis. Again, super exciting conversation around really just what it is to to build a DEX and how do you kind of shift things back in favor of LPs and really get profitability uh, flowing their way. But before we jump over to that interview, want to give a quick shout out to the Atom Accelerator for sponsoring our show. And again, if you're a developer looking to build an awesome product that has real economic value or can just 
you know, in general, bring benefit to an ecosystem, the Atom Economic Zone is looking to help you build. Uh, currently, the Accelerator is giving out grants in batches of $10,000 to $1 million uh, on a rolling monthly basis, and they're super passionate about building up the, the, the ecosystem. And so Interchain Security means you can launch with the security of the Atom, uh, the Cosmos Hub itself, powered by Atom. Uh, IBC gives you the flexibility of interoperability and in combination with interchain accounts gives you this seamless cross-chain uh, ability to transact and it, it truly is becoming quite seamless and Stride is really can show you what that is with their one-click deposits um, and they're again Stride is helping push out the advancement of LSTs which improves DeFi alongside Noble bringing in uh, native USDC uh, and most more recently you know we have Duality kind of setting the standard on what value accrual should look like uh, when it comes to making a deal for the Cosmos Hub via interchain security. So again, if you're a developer looking to build a project and kind of needing that first kickstart, again, be sure to reach out to the Adam Accelerator. We will put their link in the show notes. Now onto the interview with Sunny from Osmosis. All right. We are joined with a guest who obviously needs no introduction, Sunny from Osmosis. Uh, thanks for coming on, Sunny. How'd the, how'd the hackathon go over with Delphi? Uh, correct. Really well. Uh, the, it was a, like, not like a, one of those, sh uh, two, a, one, it was like a month long online one. Uh, but, uh, you know, really happy with the result. I'm glad to hear that the, uh, enthusiasm, despite the bear market amongst Cosmos builders is still robust. <laughs> it's always good oh, to yeah. hear. Um, but I did want to obviously have an osmosis here. There's been a ton of different changes, but before we did that, I was hoping you could just give a quick 30-second elevator pitch. What is Osmosis? How has it been since Genesis launch? Would you define it as a success? And I guess kind of like what are the goals going forward? Yeah. So Osmosis is a decentralized exchange. Uh, but what makes it unique, it is a decentralized exchange built as its own app chain. So instead of being built on top of Ethereum or EVM or L2s, it's its own chain for the purpose of being the best decks possible because what we realized was when we were trying to design how to build the decks we realized most of the limitations come from the constraints that the chain puts on you if you want to build stuff around privacy you need to add new cryptographic primitives if you want to do things around uh ux of how fees work you need to go change how the mempool works if you want to do stuff with mev mitigation you have to go you know also change how the mempool works and so uh there was all these things where we th thought that like, okay, the next, wh where the next innovation is really going to come to make uh, DEXs and DeFi like usable, um, especially for privacy and UX side is comes from building your own chain. So that's what we did. Uh, it launched about two years ago. Uh, last week was, or two weeks ago was the uh, two year anniversary of Osmosis. And uh, in that time, it's been, a um, lot of ups and downs, uh, both that, you know, and if we're talking about price or liquidity and usage, but like, so I, I would say like overall osmosis definitely has been a success and, you know, part of the goal there was to help bootstrap the cosmos ecosystem. And so, you know, we kind of helped it did that because that's the stack that we're built on. And so, uh, we became the largest decks in the Cosmos ecosystem. There was a few competitors and still are today, but like, you know, the lion's share of volume and liquidity is on osmosis. Uh, we were the biggest decks for UST, uh, which was uh, what worked really great for us for a long time. We were growing like crazy, a lot of liquidity. And then obviously that all vanished into thin air. 
Uh, so, but we are uh, still, you know, uh, but at the same time, the whole Terra uh, explosion uh, kind of, I call it the supernova because it exploded, but it sent stardust throughout the cosmos. And so a lot of the uh, builders and users and stuff who maybe got onboarded through Terra have like found a new home throughout cosmos. Many of them building on top of osmosis and like building the other building this like ecosystem of applications around the osmosis decks. Nice. That actually set me up perfectly for this segue here. The carbon upgrade from 2022 uh, enabled Cosmwasm smart contracts on Osmosis. And I believe Mars has been the first protocol to to utilize that and launch on Osmosis as an outpost. So how has that gone so far? Have you been happy with the traction? Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, what we realized basically was, what are we trying to build with Osmosis is like build a platform that is comparable to what you like see on a centralized exchange. And on a certain, you know, we've been mostly focused on like the decks, like really the trading engine for spot trading, right? But if you go on a centralized exchange site, the spot trading is one aspect of it, right? They also do other things like margin trading, perps, launch pads, fiat on ramps. Like you have this like ecosystem of things that are all packaged into one unified experience. And, you know, and so what our thought was like, Originally, we were trying to build all of that in-house. We were building our own lending protocol in order to do margin trading. We were working on our own launch pad. Uh, but then what we realized is like, okay, we were actually kind of spreading ourselves uh, quite thin there. And so what we realized is, hey, instead of us trying to build everything in-house, why don't we make a system where we can work with other teams to build these necessary components? And you know, as I mentioned, it just happened to come at a the same right around the same time as the Terra debacle. And so that you you had suddenly had a lot of teams with a lot of Cosmwasm development experience were looking for a new home. And so basically we were able so yeah, so Mars uh is this uh project, you know, b- built by by Delphi Labs. And so they were building a lending protocol uh that they migrated to Osmosis and now, you know, you can do do borrow lend on osmosis, but what the real goal here is to build a proper margin trading uh, experience, which is what they're working on right now. Then you also have projects like Levana and OMX. OMX was one of the other uh, uh, Delphi Hackathon winners, and then Levana came from Terra, but they're both building uh, GMX style perps protocols. Um, you have like IBCX, which is a index token for the Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, you have people built Calc, who's built DCA uh, tooling. You have StreamSwap, which is this launch pad that we originally started building in-house, but that we just like sort of handed off to another team to be to like run with. And so, yeah, now we have all these like components that, uh, that you imagine expect to see in a fully functional like exchange. You're you're now able to start accessing them uh, all on like the Osmosis chain and on the app. On the website for Osmosis, now we have this like app store where you can access all of these like different uh, tools as well. And then, you know, the goal is right now it's still when you click on them, it it kicks you off onto a different site. You go onto the Calc site or you go onto the Levana site. But the end goal here is to have them all eventually integrated into one uh, UX. Oh, that's awesome. I love to see all the pieces kind of falling in place right there. That's that's honestly really exciting to see. That's, that's the beauty of an app chain is to be able to recreate uh, that off-chain like experience and you know building a chain specifically tailored to you, to your needs 
Um, one of the other questions I had related to this was, you know, the hot thing to do these days is is build your own decentralized stablecoin. Any plans there? I, I think there's a team, Membrane Finance, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, is doing something similar to this. Yep. So Membrane, um, also a post Xterra team, but they are uh, building a multi. They're taking sort of some ideas from a bunch of different stable uh, existing stablecoins and combining them into one. So they take some a lot of inspiration. So they're they're a multi collateral uh, over collateralized stablecoin. Um, and they follow more of a reflexor, uh, rye type of thing where instead of, you know, taking the, uh, die approach and having a PSM, which eventually leads you to be mostly like centralized stablecoin back, they are instead making it so, you know, it has a free floating exchange rate, but unlike rye, it, which is only single collateral with ETH, this is going to be multi-collateral. So you're able to use Atom, Osmo, ETH, Bitcoin, um, all these different assets in order to do this. Um, and then they'll also offer systems like LUSD for uh, direct redemptions. So even though it is has, does have a floating rate like uh, Rye, the LUSD system, the, the, the direct redemptions will help it uh, maintain the peg a little bit more strongly than you would with Rye. So um, yeah, so they're it's definitely a little bit of a radical take, like their whole Rye free floating exchange rate. It's uh, TBD how that fares with like users long term, right? Because I think, uh, I think long term it is the necessary right thing to do. I saw this interesting graph the other day of like showed that over the course of the, like the last two years, Rye has actually more closely tracked the U.S. dollar than like most like uh, FX like major FX assets. So like it's better track the dollar than the euro, than the Swiss franc, than like, you know, the pound. And so it's like, it's actually pretty good as a store of value, uh, all things considered. Um, and, but so we'll see how it, and I think that's the end goal here. You know, we should be building crypto native units of accounts. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited for for that with Membrane. Uh, and then I've also been chatting with the Membrane team about potentially reusing their contracts. So so one of the things that they do also that's uh, different than how DAI does it, in DAI, even though it is multi-collateral, every CDP is single collateral. So you you can have an ETH CDP and then you can have a WBTC CDP, but they both have their own independent liquidation points. With the membrane design, all your assets are in a single uh, vault. And so that way, uh, you know, you don't have to have different liquidation points for every individual asset. They, they all follow us, you know, uh, even if let's say your ETH goes down in value, but the Bitcoin goes up, it's fine because they're all uh, working on a single CDP. So um, yeah, so that, that, that's one of the cool things that they've done. And so what, so what I was mentioning was uh, we're discussing with them about reusing the contracts to launch a second stable coin uh, called BitDollar, which is going to be a Bitcoin only back stablecoin. So just like, you know, I think the multi-collateral stablecoin has some usages, but I think there's also, uh, you know, it's an experiment where we want to run of like, hey, why, why, what if we had a, just how you have a lot of stablecoins in Ethereum ecosystem that are only backed by ETH and there is a demand for those. Uh, we want to see how we can, what, what will, what kind of demand we can drive for a stablecoin that's only backed by Bitcoin. Interesting. I love how uh, everyone in the Cosmos ecosystem seems to have a soft spot for Bitcoin. That's one of my favorite parts, honestly. But uh, I did want to dive in a bit into the Proto Rev module. 
Um, I actually don't understand this super well at all, but I did read uh, Effort Capital's latest Blockworks research report, and he said that you guys had generated about 100K of revenue since launching that, I think, in early April. Can you kind of explain to the listeners what exactly that is and, and what the integration entails? Yeah, so ProtoRev is the first of a couple of products that we're building around MEV um, in, in Osmosis. And what it what the idea... Now, our take on MEV in general is we kind of split it into harmful and benign MEV. Harmful MEV is the type where you are reading other people's transactions before they're executed and acting upon them. So basically, that would include things like front running or sandwiching and stuff. Um, then there's the benign MEV where it's not really, it, it's what you do based not off of reading other people's transactions, but just like, you know, uh, Let's say you're doing an arbitrage, you're arbing a centralized exchange, you know, arbing prices on the decks to prices on uh, external markets. And, you know, no one's really getting harmed there. And so that's kind of what we're, uh, we want to encourage, uh, you know, how can we, instead of leaking all of that value to external arbors, how can we capture as much of that value into the protocol uh, itself? So ProtoRev is the first one of uh, these products where what it does is it backruns uh, users where what what you can, you can imagine that there's like multiple pools on the decks where uh, let's say there's a way someone wanted to trade uh, USDC for Osmo right the thing is there might be multiple pool routes with by which to do that you could there's a direct USDC to Osmo uh, pool but then there's also a pool that you can maybe swap USDC for Adam and then Adam for Osmo and you know we incur, you know, we encourage people to use good routers that like try to split correctly. But at the end of the day, it's not always possible to split uh, perfectly, uh, just because of, you know, how you you don't know what the state of the blockchain is when you execute the transaction. Um, so what we what ProtoRev does. So normally, what happens is there's a lot of backrunning happening where people would be like spamming transactions, trying to uh, arb backrun people and arb uh, arb the pools. Um, what we realize is, hey, why doesn't the protocol just do this itself? So instead of like being spammed by people trying to backrun, we we can just have it after everyone any anyone does a swap, the the blockchain code by itself looks for certain cyclical arbs and executes them, and then takes the revenue from those executions and gives gives it to, uh, well, the the governance proposal for what to do with the re earned revenue is up for vote right now what's your uh, what's your insights like what do you think is the best use of that revenue i think probably a combination of uh you know distrib i would say majority should just be distributed to stakers because i think you know osmosis currently mostly been you know it has pretty high inflationary yields in order to incentivize staking but the goal here is to switch towards like real yield right you know uh Similarly, like the governance just uh, voted for the activation of a fee switch where basically start charging taker fees on the exchange that go to the protocol. Yeah, that's that's let's dive into that 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 fee switch there as well, because my understanding is this is an additional fee on top of the uh, the current swap fee that specifically goes to the protocol. Uh, so what was your uh, what was the idea that was really the, the driving force behind this decision to add this additional fee? Yeah, I, I think the. Driving force is that at the end of the day, uh, the Osmosis protocol needs to be self-sustainable, and you know up till up till today, it was mostly uh, driven off of like inflationary rewards. But 
uh, as part of Osmo 2.0, which we will talk about. But basically, you know, inflation needs to go down, right? You know, it, it was a good growth hack, but we need, you know, at some point, uh, like any business, osmosis as a protocol needs to be uh, self-sustainable and it needs some uh, source of revenue. And the primary source of revenue for any exchange, centralized or decentralized, as at the end of the day, you know, we have the MEV revenues as well as a second source, but at the end of the day, the trading fees are sort of the primary bread and butter for any exchange. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's two we're two years in, and I think it's it was governance decided it was time to start activating, you know, start charging our taker fee, uh, and it works well because, um, like you mentioned, it is an additional fee on top of the um, LP fees. I actually don't really like the term LP fees, to be honest. I prefer, we're, we're actually changed in the code. We went ahead and changed all of them to be called spread factors because that's really, if you think about it, that's what it is. When you set a, in a pool, you're basically, you know, what are what is an AMM? It's people market making at a certain price. And, and when you're market making, you set a certain spread, the difference between the highest buy and uh, bid and ask, right? And so basically the spread factor is basically it's the automated market maker. It's what spread they're market making at. So it is an additional fee on top of the spread factor of each pool. But we, we expect that most liquidity is going to start to migrate towards thinner uh, spread factors. So with concentrated liquidity, because now you're going to be able to uh, you know concentrate. And you see this happen on Uniswap for most pairs, where you know uh, active more active market makers will start to come in and basically start to quote at uh, smaller uh, spreads. And then there's also a cool way, you know, once it's funny that once you have a protocol fee, now you can start to build in me mechanisms of reducing the protocol fee. It kind of, uh, it's kind of funny where like now, you know, you look at a lot of exchanges do things like affiliate referral links. You can do things like, oh, the more Osmo you have staked, the, your trade, your protocol fees can go down. Uh, you can decrease based off of trading volume. That's a common thing that most centralized exchanges do. So now that there's a, a stick that's involved, now you can start to like use it as a carrot as well uh, to incentivize certain behaviors from from traders. So one of the things that you know between the proto red mod module and the allocation of what you, what to do with that revenue, and then with the inclusion of the the additional fee here, the the taker fee, um, you know, I'm starting to get the sense that there's. The, 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 I guess the difference between Osmosis and let's say Uniswap, for example, is you know Osmosis has the extra factor of having stakers, and they need to take care of that party and make sure that they're incentivized to to contribute doing their work. I really like the work you're doing and trying to get that um, towards like this more real yield side of things, where it's this not just inflationary rewards. But I'm curious, like how do you think about the trade off as well? Because you almost need both parties equally. Without liquidity, you don't have a dex, and without stakers and, and validators, you don't have an amp chain. So how do you think about the dynamics at play there? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's not like incentives are going away for liquidity providers. It's uh, they, part of Osmo 2.0, all it did was shift more of the incentives towards stakers. There's still, uh, you know, a significant portion of inflation goes towards uh, our daily issue and goes towards uh, LPs. And the thing is with concentrated liquidity, like Uniswap V3 style concentrated liquidity, you just really don't need the same amount of uh, capital in order to provide the same uh, liquidity, right? the same, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to provide the users with a certain level of price impact when they make trades. And, you know, with contra liquidity, you can get away with like significantly, like 
a magnitude less of liquidity and still get the same uh, user experience. And so that's the idea where you know we can drive down incentives because we're we just don't fundamentally need as much capital, and we can that capital in the Osmosis ecosystem can be directed towards other things. You know, uh, being lent out on things like Mars or uh, being, you know, staking to help secure the protocol. Okay, I'm, I like the, the the breakdown there as well because it's kind of become the hot topic recently. Mm-hmm. To you know, re- realizing that LPing just seems to be negative EV, whether you're using IL impermanent loss or LVR loss versus rebalancing or like a markout strategy as the common thing to do uh, in you know traditional market making, and that's just kind of what every different angle of people are coming at it from. That the results just show that being an LP is kind of taking the short end of the stick. So do you, how do you think about that? Like, you know, you see Uni V4 come out, Ambient, and now you guys are using this Uniswap V3 model. Uh, it's kind of like this active market making. Like, do you think that that's really the future and more of that, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the traditional XYK or even something like a curve V2 that's passive concentrated liquidity? Do you think that the future of, of AMMs is really just this more active design? I, I definitely think it is the more active design. I think um, it depends on the stage of the market, right? So... Our take has always been AMMs are really good for bootstrapping new ecosystems, are bootstrapping new assets. And for the last few years, that's what we've been doing is bootstrapping, helping bootstrap Cosmos. So I think now Cosmos is getting mature enough. There's enough high cap assets that, uh, you know, we need something more capital efficient than what we had before. Uh, and so I, you know, I hope you mentioned Curve V2 because I, I still do believe that passive strategies are good, but I, I think the passive strategies need to still be smarter than uh, just, you know, XYK. And so uh, Astroport, for example, is uh, building a, there's, there's actually a number of teams sort of building market making um, AMM vaults, you know, they call them AMM because that's what they are, right? They're automated market makers. But instead of being a dex that people trade against that pool it, it they are market making on top of the osmosis uh contrary liquidity and order books so that's another thing i didn't mention we're also building order books as well and so uh, and the idea is the order books and cl pools are actually integrated as one system um but yeah so with you know yeah you, you'll be able to do a curve v2 strategy but it's going to be on the same book as you know, active, you know, limit orders and stuff. Um, or Elixir is building their own strategies as well. And so um, I, what, I, what I imagine happening is that new tokens at launch, they might go, you know, the nice thing of what AMMs did was it made the process to launch a token much easier. You don't have to go hire a market maker to do that for you. You just put assets into these, uh, into the pool or into this, like these vaults, they'll do it. And then eventually what will happen is if an asset gets enough volume, enough traction, you'll ha- naturally have active market makers come start to market make. And then at that point, maybe the even a curve V2 style strategy, it, it probably won't even, you know, maybe it'll still be effective for your mid cap assets, but it's just fundamentally not going to be uh, competitive in like a Bitcoin USDC market. And so those are just going to start to go away and it's gonna those are going to be dominated by your active market makers. So the nice thing of having taking this vaults on top of a single unified order book we call these loot books um it's an order it's the the combination of the limit or the order book and the contrary liquidity book we're calling the we call, we call these loot books it stands for limit orders on ticks um because basically what happens is you know in a cl system you have these like liquidity buckets 
And what we let you do is we're going to let you place limit orders at the tick boundary. So if you're making a swap, it first goes through a specific bucket, then it goes FIFO through all the limit orders at the tick boundary, and then it goes into the next bucket, then to the limit order. So uh, you kind of get a unified book. And so, yeah, the goal here is build a single unified market and then let people build different strategies on top. That's incredible. So we just spoke to... Uh... Doug Colkett, the the founder of uh, Crocswap, formerly Crocswap, now Ambient, and they they did they're doing this similar thing with the the limit orders, which is so cool. I love the use of this this tick methodology to kind of create on chain limit orders. Um, and then in that case, like you're kind of like the LP, not the trader. Very interesting dynamic. Uh, but just for the, the the listener, I feel like everyone's pretty comfortable with what the Uni V3 AMM style is. But when we talk about Curve V2, this is a like an an automated concentrated liquidity. That's why I'm calling it passive. So there's like basically like a trailing exponential moving average that uh, the pool is aware of, of what trades get executed through the pool. And then the liquidity in that pool will continuously be rebalanced um, back to the central or the current point. So basically mm-hmm. creating uh, a uni V3 style, but without the LPs actually having to move the liquidity, the pool does it instead. Um, mm-hmm. And so I-, I love to hear that you guys are kind of innovating and shoving these two models together. <laughs> it's funny. Effort Capital and I were actually talking about that just a, a few days ago. So he probably uh, was talking to somebody over there and then brought, brought that idea to me trying to seem like the genius in the room. I, I love that. But um, so, yeah, we were talking about the the trade-offs between stakers and LPs, but there's also like the same trade-off between LPs and traders. And so the like leading methodology to kind of bring some value back to LPs has been all right, well, let's institute a, instead of just a flat fee on trades, like a dynamic fee based on volatility or trade size or something of that nature. Uh, are you guys thinking about kind of in, introducing this dynamic fee model? Like Trader Joe made this popular, UniV4 is talking about it, Curve does it. Yeah. So I, this is part of the job of a vault, basically. Um, like I said, I think the notion of the framing of LP trading fees is kind of off. What it really is, is these are spreads, right? And what Curve V2 does by having a dynamic fee, right? And it, But if you think about it, if it's a vault that's market making on top of an order book, all it's doing is based off of the volatility, it's replacing limit orders at like changing the spread that it's charging uh, on, on these limit orders. And so that's kind of, what um these you know this is what astroport is building right now is a vault that like you know it places limit orders on the order book and just shifts the limit orders uh based instead of changing the fee it's not really a fee it's just changing the spread that it's charging i gotcha gotcha keep in mind this is what market makers do in the real world when when volatility is high they, they they do two things actually right they do one which is they chain increase the spread but the other thing they also do is they pull liquidity and that's the other thing i think uh you know we were working uh we were working on a design for this it kind of ended up kind of uh being put on the hold because we decided to focus on building like contrary liquidity and order books instead but we were building a passive contrary liquidity system as well that would like not just increase the spread but also pull liquidity at times of high volatility and then re-add liquidity once the volatility goes down so that i imagine you know I think that by having a, a really good order book and a system for people to experiment with building vaults, 
we're going to start to see all sorts of interesting like passive vault systems being built. Okay, that's pretty interesting. And are these vaults like um, you know permissionless? Like, can anyone go create a vault and pair it with different assets, or what's the idea there? So they will be uh, so deploying contracts on Osmosis is permissioned, uh, so it'll have to be whitelisted by governance. Uh, but you can also do it by a interchain accounts, right? So you can have a contract on a different chain, like Quasar, for example. And, you know, all the vault logic happens there. And it just like using an interchain account, it just replaces the uh, positions. The benefit to having a native whitelisted one on the Osmosis chain is that with the app chain functionality, we can give a little bit more benefits where like, let's say something like Astroport, it's, if it's a permit, if it's like something, this curve V2 strategy is this like, uh, you know, special strategy that we want to encourage, we can actually give the Astroport vaults the ability to like replace their limit orders at the beginning of every block because otherwise they're kind of playing this race game against other traders but instead if we like say like, oh no we're going to treat this curve v2 strategy as something native we can like poke it at the beginning of every block and it will reposition its limit orders uh before anyone has a chance to uh trade against the stale data okay awesome awesome i love that as well now this is super cool and one of the other things that's kind of been a hot topic these days is like, if you know a user is bringing you toxic flow, should you discriminate against their order and maybe charge them a higher fee? What are your thoughts on that? Um, the, who should discriminate? The job of a market maker is to do literally that. And the problem is, how do you know? Um, you, you, you can't really know. The job of the of the exchange is to you know, at least our job, how we see it is to build like privacy, right? And so um, right now, like this is the whole idea behind JIT, like just in time liquidity, uh, where, you know, the idea is, oh, you're only going to be market making against non-toxic flow and pulling out when there's toxic flow. And some people actually, you know, I think there's this like harmful meme narrative that like this is good because it gives better execution to traders but i think that's actually like not exactly correct where i think second order it actually hurts the market because the job of an order book is to like aggregate information in the market and when people are keeping liquidity off of the order book there's less information in the market there's people don't know how to set their slippage bounds correctly and then because of that that will actually because it looks like there's less liquidity on the book. And because people have set larger slippage bounds, now you're actually going to have more front running and sandwiching happening. So I think really this like JIT liquidity is kind of harmful to the network where, and, and like I said, it's fundamentally coming from a privacy breach right now where the fact that you can see trades in the, in the mempool. So, you know, what, what we're, what we're moving towards is um, like making, you know, private trading and then, if market makers have other ways of figure of differentiating toxic flow or not, that's up to them to build strategies around. Interesting. So switching gears a little bit, there is a ton of different DEX primitives launching in the cosmos. You've got Astroport, which you've mentioned a few times. You've got duality, which is more atom economic zone centric. You've got, mm -hmm. I mean, say like the, the list goes on. You got DYDX coming. So I guess just how are you thinking about this com uh, competition? Do you think it's like synergistic or are you looking at it as like, man, the time to ship and make changes to Osmos now? Um, 
I guess both. Like, I mean, obviously, I think competition is good. It puts a fire under our asses to like ship a lot of this, uh, you know, ship faster. Um, and, you know, I think more DEXs, more activity in Cosmos is always good. Just like, you know, we can't be everything for everyone. Like, like DYDX, right? Like we are not even like going after the same market whatsoever, right? DYDX is very much focused on like only on perps and like way more like institutional traders. That's, you know, our internal mission statement is we want to be like, we're, we're com- our, our biggest competitor, we see it as Coinbase, right? We're trying to be like the best retail experience for trading crypto, but in a decentralized way. And so it's like, we're not competing with DYDX and we're actually like, I think it's actually quite synergistic. Like, you know, I was, we were just chatting with them about what are ways that we, you know, they're going to use us for onboarding flows of like bringing users from Ethereum into like their DYDX V4 chain, or even once they, you know, one day start to go towards multi-collateral, like using osmosis for like liquidations, for example. Right. Um, so, you know, I think like a lot of synergies, uh, there. Um, and then, yeah, Astroport, uh, Right now, they're kind of acting like a DEX themselves. That's kind of the strategy that they're going on for some, like how they are on Terra and Neutron, for example. But on Osmosis, like I mentioned, like their goal is less to be the DEX. They're not. They they know that long term, like you need order book style stuff, and that's not what they're building. Right. Their goal is to build AMMs. Whether that means you have an AMM that people can trade against directly, or whether it's an AMM that a vault that market makes on top of. Uh, order books and that's what they're doing on top of osmosis and on top of injective as well so you know I, with with astroport i think you know we're, we're, we're collaborating on stuff um duality uh to be honest I, I actually don't know too much uh about like what 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 exactly it is that they're building i haven't really seen or played around with the product yet yeah, that's the, I was curious specifically about duality just because they're probably not launching their own token. They're like Adam economic zone. I'm just curious if you think, uh, I guess this Adam economic zone is like the right path forward for the cosmos as a whole, or whether you think they need to be remaining more credibly neutral. Like was there, you know, kind of original mission statement? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, I think the Adam economic zone is a good strategy. I don't understand why duality doesn't have a token though, or like, I don't know. The, the whole duality proposal was a little bit odd to me. I don't, uh, well, keep in mind, like, this is not the first time the Cosmos Hub has tried to build a fully Atom owned DEX, right? There was Gravity DEX, but it kind of failed against Osmosis because of a lack of incentives, of a lack of incentives for the dev team, really, right? And so it kind of seems a little bit odd to me that the duality system is like, oh, kind of just repeating the same thing. There's no token for incentives. There's no, why is the dev team even incentivized to work on this two, three years down the road if they don't have any upside on it? So it's something feels a little bit too good to be true in the duality proposal to me. Um, but I don't know if there might be you know other tricks up their sleeve on how they plan on doing it. Um, the, the the AEZ stuff is interesting. Like you know you see what like Stride did with like getting Adam from the community pool, put it on SD Adam, then LP on Neutron. Problem is. Atom, ST Atom is not really a trading pair, right? That's like a single asset. There's two versions of the same asset. It's like, you know, I think how you build up liquidity is you need actual users who are willing to take risks and like market make assets, right? You need, you know, Atom, ST Atom is not really a DEX, right? You need Atom with USDC or you need Atom with Osmo. You need ball assets. You need, you need multiple ball assets. So, um, 
TBD, how the AEZ manages to build up liquidity for non-Adam assets. Yeah, I think that's a, a super fair take and a good point. Um, in terms of, you know, you brought up interchain security with Stride. I'm curious about mesh security. Can you kind of explain exactly how that's different, just to clear it up for me, honestly, and then how uh, Osmosis is uh, planning on implementing that, if at all? Yeah, so mesh security is kind of was what interchain security was supposed to be. Uh, interchain security was this idea that like has, or like the original idea was this move is to build this like restaking protocol where, oh, atom holders are going to be able to restake their atoms like they and like be used to secure all the different Cosmos chains. And then the atoms on the Cosmos hub will get slashed if there's anything malicious happening on any of these chains. And so that was, you know, this design that we came up with years ago. And then at some point along the way, that team, like the hub development team abandoned it and moved towards this like very simplistic, basic version of ICS, which is all the hub validators run <laughs> the all these other chains, which is not really, that's it, like, it's not scalable at all, right? Like you have to go through a governance proposal to add new chains. You have to um, like, it's, it's really a block size increase. It's not a scalability solution or, or like anything, right? And so um, the, the goal really was supposed to be this opt-in thing where individual validators or stakers can choose which chains to get give security to. And the whole point is that like the belief in Cosmos is not all chains need the same level of security like you know the example i always gave was maker does not need like crypto kitties does not need the same security as the maker chain right it's fine for crypto kitties to have less security and so that's what the opt-in model does and so because the ics development team effectively abandoned it we were like okay well someone has to build this because this is like how security needs to work in cosmos so that's kind of why we ended up building mesh security and along the way while building it we were like hey there's ways of using this protocol in ways we hadn't thought of before. Like, so instead of just, so mesh security is really just this primitive of restaking where you, but we realized, Hey, why do we actually only have to get restaked from one chain? Why can't we get restaked from multiple chains? Let's say osmosis wants to get, you know, uh, do get security from Adam, but why can't we also get security from ETH via eigenlayer? Or why can't we also get security from, uh, I don't know, uh, Bitcoin via Babylon, right? Like, why don't we get security from multiple places at the same time? The other thing, one is like, why aren't we actually running these things bi-directionally? Like, why aren't like, hey, if the atom, sorry, if the osmosis wants to provide security to the Axelar chain, but Axelar wants to provide security to osmosis, that's actually win-win for both of us because now both of our chains are being secured by the sum of our market caps. Uh, and this kind of builds this level of resiliency where like, you know, we don't want our entire ecosystem, kind of the whole premise of Cosmos has always been this like very mesh decentralized idea of like no one central point of failure, you know, IBC is point to point. Um, and, you know, you know that, that's some, something like Terra, right? Like if you're, you're, it's always possible that the base asset of a system could go to zero in like a day, right? And so it's like, let's not build all of our security assumptions around a single uh, asset or system. Let's like make it so security is this like very poly, uh, polycentric thing of like getting, getting security from as many different places as possible. So yeah, like I said, mesh security, it's a primitive, it's a set of like things that you can use. And then 
the economic constructions that people use this mesh security primitive in, uh, there's going to be a bunch of different ones. So we'll see how those play out. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch the dynamics play between. And I'm just curious, like if I'm a hub validator and I'm just running, you know, my software and hardware to power the hub, and now I'm powering multiple chains through through ICS, like how does my how does my like, you know, let's say just utility costs, like hardware costs, software costs, like how does that change with the inclusion of ICS? And is that any different for this mesh security model? So the the thing with the ICS model is that as a validator, you are forced to validate every chain that like uh, gets approved by ICS. And I think there's almost this weird mismatch between like the validators who incur the costs but are not the ones who are these sole people of governance. And so governance keeps us like w- approving every ICS chain that comes along, but like validators are like bearing this cost of increasing fees. And so Maybe what end up might happening is like validators have to start charging more and more on commissions, for example, uh, to cover these costs. Um, but I, obviously, it's possible as well that revenues from these chains could also offset the cost that they have to do. But the idea is that with mesh security is by making it opt in, validators choose which chains to do, they want to run on. That now it becomes a you know instead of like use instead of this like very top down decision making that's going to be like oh like governance selects that like oh the this is what very command economy style like the idea behind mesh is like supposed to be like way more hayekian right like individual people will make decisions of which chain validating which chains makes economic uh sense for them and what you'll end up happening is having these power laws of security where like some validators are going to be so efficient and they're just going to like run on every chain possible, or maybe they'll run on the chains that they have incentive alignment with. Um, while some chains are going to be like so important and so lucrative that every validator is going to uh, like co-validate that chain as well. So um, yeah, it's just more like let the market figure out where security, like the balance between security and economics. Right on, right on. And uh, we just did a podcast with the Matter Labs team on the announcement of ZK Stack, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on more broadly, like the Ethereum vision has kind of like shifted over the years, uh, and it's kind of like culminating at this point that it looks quite similar to uh, what the Cosmos crowd has been banging a drum about for quite some time as well. So I'm curious to get your take, like, you know, we have app chains, roll apps, the, now they're calling them hyper chains, that's basically just change using like the Cosmos SDK. Um, you know, the Cosmos ecosystem has IBC for native out-of-the-box communication, uh, where the CK stack is using this. When you're using the same uh, prover, you have the ability to like what they're calling hyper bridges. So there's a lot of parallels that are getting drawn between the two. What do you think about that? And like, is this the right path for- forward for the Ethereum crowd? Um, I think it's after the right path forward for Ethereum. I think this architecture is the correct architecture um, and what, you know, why we've been working towards it for years. Um I think obviously it does lead a question to like, okay, in, in this world, how, where does Cosmos land given all of this, right? Like if everyone in Ethereum is just building the same thing, what differentiates Cosmos now? Um, and I think, you know, I, I mean, I have my own answers to that, but I, you know, I think we'll see how the market plays out. I also wanted to get like a more high level question from you. We were all speculating on what you meant by this uh, in our analyst chat in, in Slack, but you tweeted out, Proof of stake was a mistake. <laughs> Can you please elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah. So I think what I, 
I've just been a little bit disappointed with how like with staking derivatives in general, I think, uh, or just like the impact that they've had on, honestly, I'll admit it was a little bit of a, uh, just like in the moment tweet. I didn't realize it would get this much attention. It might've been one of my most popular tweets in like a while. Cause I think all the proof of work maxis found it and were like, oh, look, see, and that's not really what I meant. But what I, what I really, uh, was trying was, you know, we spend so much time like building these like mechanisms into proof of stake, build, like having like you know, economic make it so oh, validators have something economic at stake. Um, being this very open market where you say, oh, the holders of the tokens of the network will make decisions of to choose who the validators are, um, and using like risk decisions that they make. But then the problem with staking derivatives is they come along and basically hand select validators um, by a sometimes a pretty opaque process. And then, you know, all the users choose to stake through these liquid staking providers in order to get the liquidity, you know, to get the staking derivative because they want that liquidity. And so it just feels to me that like proof of stake is almost evolving somewhat into this like proof of authority system instead where it's like being select selected by a hand selected people and it's like i guess my point was more like well if we're going to do that why don't we just do it why don't we just like do a proof of authority system instead maybe let governance like whitelist validators instead of the, having this whole like uh proof of stake system so it wasn't saying that proof of stake was like wrong i think the mistake was that we spent a lot of the time in the design of proof of stake, not expecting staking derivatives to become as dominant as uh, they are today. And so there's things I think we can solve like in the short term. Uh, one of the things I've been pushing for heavily is this idea of copy staking, which is this idea that um, staking derivative providers should exactly copy the de delegation distribution of non-liquid staking derivatives users. So now that way, when you're staking, you have the choice of either you go through liquid staking derivative provider and you get this like, um, you know, liquidity on your staked assets, or you stake directly, you, you're, you're foregoing that liquidity, but now you have the ability to choose the uh, distribution of voting power. So, you know, you can imagine, it basically ends up devolving down into like, validators self bonds are the ones that are actually directly staked while everything else is going through liquid staking which seems like the end end goal we're going towards so might as well make it so the liquid staking providers aren't the ones selecting the validators rather it is still somewhat proof of stake ish in selecting the validators so that's one thing um long term i mean i've always been a big fan of uh reputation based systems that's i think I think proof of stake was better than proof of work in many ways, um, and worse in some ways. Uh, but like, I I think the end goal here is like, okay, well, proof of stake is done. We've solved it. I think. I wonder what are other mechanisms we can do to build decentralized consensus protocols. And I really think like web of trust reputation systems are this like interesting avenue worth exploring. Yeah, shout out to our our good friend Ian for that tweet. He uh, <laughs> he really got got everyone thinking on that one, but. I do agree. Like, you know, if you look at back at the Ethereum ecosystem, for example, Lido has such, you know, overwhelming dominance. And there's only 29 provider uh, node providers that are, are operating the the stake behind that ecosystem. And, you know, there are things like Rocket Pool that exist and that are mm -hmm. kind of working to a much more decentralized model. 
Uh, but specifically in the Cosmos, you know, we really only see Stride, who is kind of building towards a more decentralized model that's similar to the one you just described. And mm-hmm. you know, they've mentioned the use of like bonded uh, delegations and things like that. But like, is I get yeah, it's just interesting to think through the dynamics of you know the one protocol really being the deciding factor on stake, especially when there are pretty aggressive winner take all forces in the LST market. I think. Um, yep. So, do you think like there's a like a possible solution would be other liquid staking providers kind of coming to market and having a great product and kind of you know helping balance that back out. You know, I think that's one thing that we're starting to see in Ethereum. I think Rocket Pool and CBETH and stuff are like starting to provide reasonable comp- competition to Lido, but we'll we'll see. Um, I think the two things that I think w- would be the biggest threat to a dominant liquid staking providers like a Stride or a Lido would be one of two options. One is chains start building their own nic- native liquid staking. So imagine someone bu- builds like, here's a, this whole copy staking thing I mentioned, right? Someone could just go build a module that anyone can import into their Cosmos SDK chain and it just auto distributes like it mints liquid staking tokens uh, following this copy staking mechanism. And so it's like, why do you need a separate option when every chain can just issue its own LSTs? So that's one option. The other option is every DeFi protocol becomes its own liquid staking provider. So this is something I've been, uh, I, I, I don't know, I still think makes a lot of sense where like, let's say something like Mars, a lending protocol, instead of it accepting ST Atom and ST Osmo as collateral, what it could do instead is say like, oh, it's only going to accept Atom and Osmo. And then it's going to go use the non-lent out Atom and Osmo and put it stake it uh, and like earn the revenue from that treat it as you can either treat it as protocol revenue or you could like use it as incentives in your system or like basically like why give up that revenue to a liquid staking provider when you know the DeFi protocols are really the ones who have the TVL at the end of the day and they could cut out a liquid staking provider as the middleman and just build that as a function of their DeFi protocol this is kind of what Anchor was trying to do um, in in Terra, so I think those are the two systems I, I I see, you know, potentially disrupting the LST monopolies. Interesting. All right. Well, we're running up on a uh, an hour here. Actually, it's it's uh, getting close to time. But I did have one more question I wanted to ask you before we let you go. ABCI plus plus. What is that exactly, and how is it beneficial for Osmosis? Hmm. Yeah, ABCI++ is, um, it's a way of, the way the Cosmos SDK stack was, Tendermint stack was designed was basically you have a state machine that doesn't have to think about consensus. You can write a state machine, your business logic without even knowing it's running as a blockchain. You write it and then you just run it on top of Tendermint and now it's like, boom, now you have a distributed state machine. Um which was sounded nice in theory, but in practice, it, what we realized over time was like, no, actually, when you're designing decentralized blockchain, like decentralized protocols, you there's actually times when your state machine does want to be more opinionated about how consensus works. And so ABCI was the name of the original protocol, it stands for application blockchain interface that the Cosmos SDK used to talk to Tendermint. Uh, and what we did was we were like, we ABCI plus plus was basically something that our team like invented to two, two, over two years ago now at this point where we're like, 
hey, okay, let's add more ways. Uh, let's, this is like extension of ABCI. We called it originally ABCI 2.0, but it was a way of like the state machine being more opinionated about the consensus protocol. And that gives you just the ability to do so much stuff. Like our original use case was we were trying to build the threshold decryption, which was like the private mempools. Uh, but you can also do things like validator provided price oracles. You could do um, all, all honestly, like there's a presentation we gave like two years ago that kind of like lists out all the different things you could do with uh, with ABCI plus plus. So it's really that's ABCI plus plus is what's going to give most unlock a lot of the app chain benefits. Awesome, Sonny. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic conversation. And again, thanks for being so generous with your time. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you and learn more about Osmosis? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am SunnyA97. And you can, on Twitter, Osmosis is at OsmosisZone. Um, and then the website is, uh, you can u- try it out using Osmosis.Zone. Awesome. Well, until next time, see you, Sonny. Sonny.